Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 28th, 2021, and the Parsha for this Shabbos is Bishalach. I have three pieces that I'd like to share with you tonight. In response to Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the Red Sea, this momentous, magnificent miracle, there is a prayer that the Jewish people offer in thanks. Famous prayer that starts with the words, Az Yashir, Az Yashir Moshe as Ashir Hazos, and then Moshe and the Jewish people sang this song of praise and thanks to God for this incredible miracle of splitting the Red Sea. Ashiro Lashem ki ga'o ga'a, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Sus farachva ramavayom, horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. Zekeli ve'anvehu, this is my God and I will beautify him. Hashem ishmil chama, God is a master of war. Mi kamocha ba'elim Hashem, who is like you, Lord, among the mighty? Hashem yimloch li'alam va'ed. The Lord will reign forever and all time. A magnificent prayer, a prayer that describes the power of God, the might, the triumph. But there is at least one line that's unexpected, surprising, doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the prayer. And at the same time, it is a line that teaches us a critical lesson. In the middle of the prayer, we say, Nachisa bechastacha am zuga'alta. Nachisa bechastacha am zuga'alta. With your kindness, God, you guided this people that you had redeemed. Nachisa, you guided them with kindness. Kindness in the past tense, nachisa. What kindness is being referred to? So the simple understanding of the Pasuk is, the Pasuk is saying the kindness that God showed with the miracles that he did in allowing the Jews to leave Egypt, in splitting the Red Sea, that was the kindness that God performed in making all these miracles happen. Okay. That's the simple way to understand it. But there's a medrash that gives an understanding that is completely different, that transforms our understanding of the entire episode. The medrash says that when the Jewish people were in Egypt and they were slaves and they were suffering and God was not coming yet to save them. They held a meeting 
they gathered together to discuss what can we do to at least make ourselves a little bit better of a situation? What can we do to improve the conditions that we're in? And perhaps what can we do to hasten God arriving to redeem us, to save us? The Chavetz Chaim, the great leader of the early 1900s, explains as follows. The people came and met and realized that the only thing that they could do that would help to end the suffering and help to hasten the redemption, the only thing they could do to make things a little bit better for themselves was for every person to be more kind one to the other. And the Chavetz Chaim writes the following words, Hadavar Hazeh Hayasiba Legeulasam, the increased acts of chesed, the acts of kindness that one practiced towards the other, that was the reason that God decided now is the time to come and redeem the Jews from Egypt. And the Chavetz Chaim concludes and says, that is the meaning of our Pasuk. And keep in mind, this Az Yashir prayer, we say this prayer every single day in our davening. And the Chavetz Chaim says, this is the meaning of the Pasuk. Nachisa b'chazdecha, amzu ga'alta, you led us out of Egypt because of the kindness that we performed. It's referring to our kindness. The kindnesses that we did one to another in Egypt. That is what brought about the redemption from Egypt. And it's important to understand that we read about and learn about and learn from the Jewish people leaving Egypt and everything that that entails. But the exact same thing is true for every single one of us as individuals. There is a personal layer to the exodus from Egypt and it's captured beautifully by a poem written by Amnon Rebak, a song by Amnon Rebak. And the title of the song is Kol Adam Tzarich Mitzrayim. Every person needs their own Egypt, their own Mitzrayim. I'll read just a couple of lines. Kol Adam Tzarich Mitzrayim. Every person needs to have a personal Egypt. Leo's Moshe Atzmo Mitocha. And to be the Moshe, to bring yourself out of it. 
Every person has to have their own personal Egypt. To redeem themselves from it, from the house of slavery. To go into the middle of the night, to the desert of fears. To march straight into the water. Lir'os niftachim mipanav litzdadim and to see the water part on either side. Kal adam tzarich shetiyah lo ezem mitzrayim every person needs their own personal Egypt, Virushalayim, and their own personal Jerusalem, Umasa Aruch Echad, and a long journey, Lizkar Osolaad, that they will remember forever. So how do we get there? How do we leave our own personal Mitzrayim and travel through the water and through the desert until we reach our own personal Yerushalayim. How do we get through the narrowness and the challenges and the difficulty in our own life? How do we get from there to our own Jerusalem? The same way, through acts of kindness, through acts of chesed from one person to another. It worked for the Jewish people then, and it will work for us. So let me share with you, please, two stories. Two stories of kindness that are very different from each other. The first story was written by a woman named Rebecca Sabki. Rebecca Sabke worked in the Department of Admissions at Dartmouth College. As you can imagine, Dartmouth College, one of the great colleges of the world, they have thousands of applicants from all over the world. And of course, every applicant to a place like Dartmouth is brilliant and talented, and they have extracurricular activities, they climb mountains, they start organizations, they are the leaders of the next generation. The problem is, if you're reading a couple of thousand of these applications every single year, one is kind of indistinguishable from another. They all are at the top of their class. They all have the best grades. They all have all of the credentials you could want. But she writes, there is one quality that when she sees it with all the other qualifications, she says it's irresistible. And that is kindness. And she writes about the most surprising kindness that she ever came across in her years of reading these thousands of applications. K 
came from a student, went to a school, top of his class, great grades, lots of extracurricular activities, recommendations from impressive people. But there was one recommendation that stood out. It was a recommendation from the school custodian. Now, as you may know, as you can imagine, usually the person you get to write a letter of recommendation to get you into a good college is a person who you think will impress the, the school, the, the, the admissions department, uh, maybe a, a celebrity, a former president, um, an Olympic athlete, someone who would impress them. She says, this letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support this student's candidacy because of this student's thoughtfulness. This young man, he wrote, was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning and tidied up after his peers even when no one was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. So this woman writes, over 15 years and 30,000 applications, she had never ever seen a recommendation written by a school custodian. And she said it gave her and her committee a window into the nature, the character of this young man. And then she writes, next year, there may be a flood of custodian recommendations thanks to this essay that she's writing, which was in the New York Times. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do to their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. That's the type of kindness that evokes redemption. Let me share a very different type of kindness. Shirley Chisholm, you may have heard of her. She was the first African-American woman elected to the United States Congress in 1968. She represented New York's 12th district, which includes her own neighborhood of Crown Heights. When she got to Washington, she was stunted in her efforts by race-related politics. And instead of the committee that she wanted to be on, she was assigned to the Agriculture Committee, a place that it was felt she would have very little influence. And you understand, she represented Crown Heights in that neighborhood, so she re represented mostly Jews and Blacks, many of them poor, 
How is she supposed to help her constituents in the agriculture committee? There are not many farmers in Crown Heights. And she was frustrated. One of her friends said she was trying to help poor people. She was interested in taking care of the issues of the inner city. And that committee had no power to do that. And then she got a call from the secretary of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who said that he wanted to see her. She came to see Rabbi Schneerson. She lived only a block away from him and she had met him once before. And the Rebbe said to her, I know you're very upset. And she said, yes, yes, Rabbi Schneerson, I'm very upset and I'm insulted and I'm frustrated. What should I do? And Rabbi Schneerson said to her, what a blessing God has given you. You know, this country, United States of America, there is so much surplus food and there are so many hungry people. You can use this gift that God has given you to feed hungry people. You just have to find a creative way to do it. So Shirley Chisholm went to Washington and on her first day in Washington, she met Senator Bob Dole, the Senator from Kansas, a big agriculture state. And Senator Dole said to her, you know, the farmers in my area are having a really tough time. They are losing money on their crops. Our farmers, Dole said to Chisholm, our farmers have all this extra food. We don't know what to do with it. And Chisholm thought to herself, one minute, the rabbi. So over the next several years, Chisholm and Dole worked together to expand the food stamp program, which allowed poor Americans to buy subsidized food. And then Shirley Chisholm helped to create the WIC program, W-I-C, which stands for Women, Infants, and Children. That is a program that provides food supplements like milk and cheese and other foods for high-risk pregnant women and their infants and their children. Today, over 8 million people receive WIC benefits every month. When Shirley Chisholm retired, there was a party in her honor. And here's what she said at her retirement party. She said, I owe this because a rabbi who is an optimist taught me that you, what you may think is a challenge is actually a gift from God. 
And if poor babies have milk and poor children have food, it's because this rabbi in Crown Heights had vision. That is a superb chesed, an act of kindness to be able to see and nurture the potential for greatness in someone else when all they can see is failure and challenge. But to bring that out in someone else, that's a superb act of kindness. That's the message of Uz Yashir. Not only the miracle, which is important, not only the triumph and the power, which is important, but also what brought the miracle. Nachisa Bechastacha Amzuga Alta. A Buddhist sage wrote many centuries ago, if one lights a fire for others, it will also brighten one's own way. That's the way to brighten your own path, your own life, your own way to redemption by lighting a fire for others. Okay, my goal now <clears throat> is to inspire you to read a book. It's called, I know it's a little hard to see. It's called Prepared for a Purpose by Antoinette Tuff. Prepared for a Purpose by Antoinette Tuff, T-U-F-F. It's an easy read. It's an amazing true story and it will enrich your life. So, Az Yashir is the prayer response of the Jewish people to the splitting of the Red Sea, which is the final act of the exodus from Egypt. And this prayer, Az Yashir, is the first public prayer in the Torah. It is the model or a model for our prayer. We say it every day, as I mentioned before. We read it in the Torah this Shabbos. And there is a problem with the text of this prayer. So the prayer tells the story of the splitting of the Red Sea and the salvation of the Jewish people. It starts with the words, Az Yashir Moshe, and then Moshe and the Jewish people sang this song of praise. Where does it end? Where does it end? Hashem Yimloch Li'olam Va'ed. The Lord will reign forever and all time. A beautiful crescendo of an ending. Exactly the dramatic ending you would expect to such a beautiful, momentous prayer. Except there's just one more verse. It's not the end. 
There's one more Pasuk. Listen to the actual ending of this prayer. Kivasus paro berichbo when Paro's horses, chariots, and riders went into the sea, God brought the waters of the sea back over them, and the Jewish people walked on dry land through the sea. Wait a second. That's the last Pasuk? That sounds like the first Pasuk. That describes what led to the splitting of the Red Sea. That's not the end of the prayer. That should be the beginning of the prayer. Because of God splitting the Red Sea, then, Az Yashir Moshe. How is that the last Pasuk? It should be the first Pasuk. So the Maharal gives the following answer. The Maharal says that the structure of this prayer is that Hashem Yim Loch the Lord will reign forever in all time. Ki Vasus Paro Berichbov Paro's horses and chariots and riders went into the sea. The Lord brought the water to the sea over them. The Jewish people walked on dry land. And that takes you back to the beginning. Us, then, when that happened, Yashir, Moshe, Vnei Yisrael, then Moshe and the Jewish people sang a song of praise. In other words, it's a loop. It's a loop. The last line takes you back to the first line. It's the last Pasuk because it leads you back to the beginning of the prayer. And this teaches us a fundamental lesson about the meaning of prayer. You know, so many of us make the mistake of thinking that the goal of prayer is to get what we want from God. Many of us have a results-oriented view of prayer. And for that reason, among other reasons, daily prayer is so hard for us to do in a meaningful way because why do we keep repeating the same requests in the same words every day? Ask God once, either he'll say yes or he'll say no, go on to something else. But why do we keep asking for the same thing every day? Does it make sense? Doesn't make sense because it's a misunderstanding or rather it is an incomplete understanding of what prayer is all about. Because the goal of prayer is not to get to the end. The goal of prayer is to enter into a relationship with God that leads us back to the beginning and which hopefully never ends. Rabbi Samson Rafal Hirsch wrote 
in his commentary to Hillam, the goal of prayer should not be so much to obtain the desired help as to reassure oneself of God's nearness in times of trouble. The awareness of this nearness is in itself the answer to prayer. Rabbi Hirsch points out, you know, we use the word prayer as the translation of the word tefillah. It's not a good translation. The words are not precisely connected to each other. Because the word prayer, the English word prayer, means a plea or a request. But the word tefillah, which we translate as prayer, but that's really not what it means. Tefillah literally, lehit palel, literally means to cause a change within ourselves. Tefillah is an activity where we gain a new perspective, where we cause something to transform within ourselves about how we view God. And the definition of tefillah is best expressed in the words of one of the lines of Psalms. Hashem aneni. Answer me, God, by inclining your ear to me. When I pray, I gain the perspective that God is close. Hirsch, once I have this awareness, my supplications have achieved their goal. So also a child grows calm and feels secure once he senses his mother's nearness. A prayer is successful not just when we get what we want. A prayer is successful when it brings into focus God's nearness. And therefore, therefore, the end of this prayer, as Yashir, leads us back to the beginning. Because when we get to the end, as Yashir, then we feel that God is close and we want to sing out a song of praise to him. I want to share with you a powerful example of how this works in practical life. Antoinette Tuff was a receptionist at a school in Atlanta, Georgia with 880 students plus teachers and staff. On the morning of August 20th, 2013, a man dressed in black and heavily armed entered the school, stood in front of her desk, pointed a rifle at her, and said, this is not a joke. This is real. We are all 
going to die today. Miraculously, unlike Columbine, unlike Dawson, unlike Sandy Hook, one hour later it ended peacefully. No one was hurt. In large part, because Antoinette Tuff remained calm, spoke to him, kept him from carrying out his plan, and convinced him to lay down his weapons and surrender. It's an amazing story, especially against the backdrop of her life. I urge you to read it. Prepared for a Purpose by Antoinette Tuff. You will thank me. So let me share a little bit about what she writes. She writes, Hero is not the word I would use to describe myself on August 20th. The word I would use is vessel. The one who was in control in that office was not me or the shooter or the police or anyone else. The one who was in control was God. All I did was serve as God's vessel. So when this man pointed a rifle and said, we are all going to die today, I asked God, what are we going to do now? And I understood, she writes, God was going to do the talking for me. That's what she means when she says she was a vessel. So how did she come to that? In this book, she describes her life. She describes her routine. Every day, she wakes at five in the morning. She starts her day with a prayer, a psalm. The same prayer every morning, 5 a.m. That very morning, in the kitchen of my home, I read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside the still waters. I read the words, I will fear no evil, for you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And she says, I read, they prepare, a, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The morning before that, at the same table, I read those same words. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And the morning before that, and the one before that too. I read those words every morning. And in this way, they seeped into my soul. So on August 20, when I asked God, what are we going to do now? I already had my answer. God 
was going to lead me beside the still waters. God was going to comfort me. God was going to do the talking for me. That is the ultimate purpose of prayer. Not to get what we ask for, but rather as Az-Yashir teaches, not just to reach the end, but to let it seep in and bring us back to the beginning of it again, so that God's nearness is available when we need it most. I hope you never face a situation like that. But I urge you to read this book. It will inspire you. It may save you when you need it most. And it will reinforce the goal of prayer that was first expressed in the form and structure of Az Yashir. Allow me to share one third piece. <laughs> Why do we need the narrative of the splitting of the Red Sea to begin with? Why do we need the whole thing? Yes, it's a great miracle, but we already had great miracles in last week's Parsha. And there will be more miracles coming up in the Torah. The man, the manna, the well of water. There are plenty of miracles. Yes, it did evoke the Shira, Az Yashir, a, 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 an incredible prayer. But, for example, we observe the first days of Pesach by singing Hallel, songs of praise. We have lots of prayers of praise to God. Was it to punish the Egyptians? But hadn't that already happened? And we are ambivalent about it. Because we are never joyous when our enemies suffer. On the holiday of Pesach, on the seventh and eighth day of Pesach, for us outside of Israel, the seventh and eighth day of Pesach, which is the anniversary of the splitting of the Red Sea, we do not say the full Hallel prayer praising God. We say the partial prayer. Several different reasons. One of the reasons is our joy is diminished because people suffered and died as a result of what they had, of what, of, of what happened that day. And yes, they were our enemies, and yes, they were chasing after us, and yes, we're grateful to God for saving us, but it's not really a reason to celebrate. We're ambivalent about it. So why do we need the whole thing? Why couldn't the Jews just have left Egypt? Pyro was defeated. We went free. We traveled. We got to Mount Sinai. We got to Israel. Why do we need the whole thing? I'd like to share with you an answer to this question that comes from 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon that he delivered in 1956. It's clear from the Torah, and it's just as clear from history and from our own personal experience, that evil is a reality in the world. It's just a fact. The Torah shows us in almost every narrative the opposition of good and evil. In the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden, there was the permitted fruit and the forbidden fruit. Noah lived at the same time as the people in his generation who were evil, good and evil. Avraham and the people of Sodom, Egypt and Israel. On the one hand, there is persecution, immorality, selfishness, on the other side, spirituality, freedom, kindness. The human condition at its most basic level is the struggle between good and evil. And the most fundamental lesson the Torah has to teach not just the Jewish people, but all mankind, and this lesson is repeated over and over again in countless ways throughout the Torah. The lesson that good eventually emerges victorious. Evil, though it may prosper, is ultimately doomed. In the words of William Cullen Bryant, truth crushed to the earth, will rise again. The struggle that expresses this most clearly for us is the narrative where our identity as the Jewish people is born in Egypt. Now, before I go any further, I want to put in parentheses a bit of a tangent. It's relevant to this, but it's also a general statement. Our sages in the Talmud say that whenever we refer to ancient nations like Egypt, Amalek, the Pelishtim, etc., etc., they are not the same people as the people living there today. People who live in Egypt today are not the Egyptians that we're referring to. It's very important to keep that in mind. That is a historical truth, and it's something that's always important to keep in mind. We are not addressing these words and thoughts to people that live in Egypt today. We're talking about this ancient people that no longer exists. But in the Torah, Egypt represents evil in the form of humiliating oppression, ungodly exploitation and crushing domination. Israel represents dedication 
to the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God who teaches morality and spirituality and justice. The struggle between them is not just political, and it's not just a class struggle of suffering slaves rising up against their masters for their freedom. It is that, but it's much more. Both Paro and Moshe understand the struggle is over the ability of goodness to triumph in this world. So even after God intervenes and Paro frees the Jews, the Egyptians make one last desperate effort to attempt to prevent the Jewish people from leaving. And they corner Israel at the Red Sea. And they must make this attempt because if Israel leaves Egypt, Egypt doesn't just lose slaves. They lose their understanding of the world. And the sea splits. And the Jewish people go through the water. They're chased by the Egyptians. And the Egyptian soldiers drown. But that's not the end. That's not the lesson we are to take from this narrative. It's in the next Pesach. Vayar Yisrael es Mitzrayim meis al sfas hayom. And the Jewish people saw Egypt dead upon the shore. Now again, we do not celebrate the death of our enemies. In fact, we are saddened by it. We learn, Bin pol oivecha altismach, when your enemy falls, do not rejoice. But Israel crosses the sea on dry land and looks back and sees and they had to see it with their own eyes. The death of evil. They saw the purpose of their leaving Egypt. They saw when they looked back at the shore behind them. That there is something in the very nature of the universe. Which ultimately comes to the aid of goodness in its perennial struggle with evil. That is what they saw, and they had to see it. They saw with their own eyes there is something in the universe which justifies the poetic words of James Russell Lowell when he wrote, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways in the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God, 
within the shadow, keeping watch over his own. We live surrounded by prejudice and small-mindedness. We see around us today attitudes of bigotry and hatred, acts of terror against us and against others. When that frustration and fear and anger rise up within us, remember what we are learning tonight. Listen, please, to Dr. King's words. Let us not despair. Let us not lose faith in man and certainly not in God. We must believe that a prejudiced mind can be changed and that man with the help of God can be lifted from the valley of hate to the high mountain of love. Vayar Yisrael es Mitzrayim the children of Israel saw with their own eyes the death of evil on the shore. See today in our Parsha the possibility, the promise of the death of evil on the shore of the Red Sea and celebrate the vision that we have given to the world. My friends, I wish you a great night and a wonderful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.